This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive Podcast. We're on Season 2, Episode 15. This is Jason Watt, and in today's episode, we're going to have another non-financial advisor. We're actually going to have a a little bit of a run here, three episodes in a row, without a financial advisor as guest, and hopefully all of these episodes bring value to the financial advisors who are listening. So today's guest is Aaron LaFuente, and we'll do the proper introduction momentarily, but Erin is a wills and estates lawyer, uh, and I think she's not supposed to say that. I think it's okay for me to say it, but anyways, practicing here in Edmonton, and Erin has been, along with other lawyers from her firm, Dentons, which I believe the world's largest law firm, she's a regular presenter at Business Career College Sessions. And this is actually one of the few things that we do in live classes now where we bring in outside subject matter expert. I find that that practicing wills and estates lawyer often has just so many stories and useful experiences that they can do a lot more than I can in the classroom around the topic of estate planning. So I always try to get the wills and estates lawyer in. And just to be fair here, Denton's not the only firm that does this kind of outreach, I find Almost invariably, if you have a relationship with a law firm where there's a wills and estates team, that they're more than happy to do some client outreach. They'll come in and talk to you know, 10 or 15 of your clients or whatever the case is. And I really do encourage that. The color for today's episode is green. The color is green. I sure hope people are getting their CE credits for listening. I, I'm happy to have listeners no matter what, but uh, I know that there is some value in being able to get those continuing education credits easily. This episode, by the way, will be good for one life insurance credit in Alberta, a half an accident and sickness credit in Alberta. It'll be good for your insurance credits in Manitoba, and it will qualify as a financial planning credit with FP Canada, and also it will be submitted for an IROC credit. So hopefully meet a bunch of credit needs by listening. Aaron's interview goes into a little bit of detail about uh, dealing with business owners, and I think it's important that we get some of the uh, vocabulary down here. So first off, we have the shareholder of a business, and the shareholder is the person who injected capital into that business or since the business started has acquired the shares from the person who injected that original capital into the business. Shareholders generally have three sets of legal rights. Now we'll come back to this in a moment, but those legal rights are generally the ability to take dividends, the ability to participate in the equity of the business, which is a a right that's seldom exercised. This generally only comes up when we liquidate the business, uh, although it can happen in other circumstances and it can be represented by collateralizing your shares, although that's a pretty rare thing. Or the uh, third right for a shareholder is the ability to vote for the board of directors. So the board of directors are the folks then who are responsible for the day-to-day direction of the business. The shareholder really, as in their role as shareholder, does not have that day-to-day responsibility. The directors, on the other hand, are quite, not necessarily involved day-to-day, but they're quite concerned 
about how the business flows sort of on a day-to-day -day basis. And the directors are the ones who decide how dividends are paid. So dividends are paid at the discretion of the board of directors. And the directors are also the ones who hire um, at least the chief executive officer or president of the company. And they may also hire other senior officers of the company. And whatever those senior officers are, they're accountable to the board of directors. You'll see a few different structures around that, but essentially the at least CEO and possibly other officers of the company report to the board of directors. So then we get to the employees of the company, and I use the term company and corporation interchangeably here, but those two things are essentially the same term. So then we have the employees of the business, and the employees, that's everybody from the chief executive officer to the folks who do the hands-on sort of, let's say, day-to-day -day grind in the business, that's all the employees. In a small business, those three rules will all be the same. You'll have the shareholder, the director, and the employee, very normal, sort of a chief cook and bottle washer situation. This is how it is at Business Career College, where I am a shareholder, a director, and an employee. As businesses get larger, uh, more mature sometimes as they start to grow in revenue, and I would suggest you start to see this distinction probably somewhere around the five to maybe $20 million revenue mark, if you have about that much annual revenue. That's where we start to see these roles sort of separate, and that's where you might have a shareholder who is really only a shareholder and has no other role. Although you sometimes see that with smaller businesses for an investor or a spouse who is really just a passive shareholder in the business. We'll have directors then who are really independent directors who may not be shareholders, but who are really hired by the shareholders for their expertise in issues like corporate governance and sustainability. And then we'll have the employees as a, a third element. So more mature businesses, those three things get separated. But in the typical businesses that most of my financial planning students would be involved in, really you're in that chief cook and bottle washer or owner operator type situation where the shareholder, director, and employer are all the same. Now, despite that, and this is the heart of some what Aaron gets into in the interview, despite that, in the eyes of the law, we have to make sure that when you're doing the shareholder role, that you're really acting as shareholder, that you're, when you're in the director role, that you're acting as director, and that when you're in the employee role, you're acting as an employee. So a lot of the planning Aaron talks about here is about making sure that the director, that's the person who really has that responsibility for day-to-day -day affairs, the director's role is the one that we generally have to protect in the case of loss of capacity. What goes hand-in-hand -hand with this generally is a unanimous shareholder agreement, or USA, and the USA is required really only when you have more than one shareholder, but where you have more than one shareholder, that USA gives the various shareholders rights and really protects them from the board of directors doing something that somehow reduces their value or reduces their ability to collect dividends or impairs some other personal planning that they might have wanted to do. In a sole owner-operator type situation, the USA doesn't really help because you've only got that one person involved. And again, that's where the type of planning that Aaron is talking about here becomes so vitally important and is often not done, which is exactly why Aaron suggests that this is something that you, the financial advisors listening to this podcast, should be attending to. Now, I'm a little bit careless with my language in the interview. You'll hear me use the term partner periodically, and I don't intend to do that. It's one of these things where legally partner means a partner in a partnership. Very few businesses are set up as partnerships. It's not very common. You see it in accounting firms, law firms. You see it in sometimes engineering and architecture firms. 
Other than that, you don't see a ton of businesses set up as partnerships. So when I use the word partner here, I really mean typically a shareholder in a more than one shareholder business. And I shouldn't be so careless with my language. It's just it's one of these things that when you use the term in that discussion, everybody knows what you mean. And if you're being very particular about it, you'll always distinguish whether you're talking about the other shareholder or the other shareholders, the other director or directors or the partners. So it actually is important to be able to make that distinction. But a lot of times the language does get a little bit careless when you're having that discussion. All right, let's hear what Aaron has to say about planning for small business owners and the potential loss of capacity. Thanks very much for joining us today, Aaron. Aaron is a Wills and Estates lawyer practicing here at Denton's Law in Edmonton. She's a University of Alberta law grad from 2001 and been practicing in the Wills and Estates area pretty much that whole time. That's it, Aaron? That's true. So long experience there. And you mentioned that you've been doing some teaching lately as well. You're all back at the U of A in the classroom now? Yes. Uh, my partner, Doris Benar, and I started teaching the Wills and Estates class last fall. And we were lucky enough to get our course in before these COVID restrictions and didn't have to learn to teach it remotely. <laughs> uh, but it was something we really enjoyed doing this last fall. It sounds like that enjoyment paid off. You said there's some award from the faculty of law in there for you and doris so yeah we won uh, the uh, pringle royal sessional instructor award for the, this academic year uh, recently uh, unfortunately it was one of those things that the presentation or the um, award ceremony was canceled due to covid so we haven't physically won the award yet or received it but we we know we did get it <laughs> so yeah we're uh, middle of may recording this and i'm hoping that we're I don't know, near the end stages of the COVID quarantine, but I don't want to be overly optimistic here. So yeah, yeah, we're going to chat today about a topic that I know is of interest to you. You've been in the classroom at BCC quite a bit talking about getting people to do proper estate planning and something that's shown up that's reared its head a little bit, I think, in this COVID era is maybe lack of planning that some business owners have done. And you've seen some specific cases about this. We were chatting a little bit. So I don't know, can you talk a little bit about maybe a recent challenge you've seen with a business owner who's planning wasn't up to standard when you first encountered them? Yeah. So in our office, we've had a, a couple of cases over the last couple of years. Um, and certainly these, these concerns have been heightened in the last few months, as we know, things can suddenly change. Um, and so the situation that we've been involved in a couple times has been where someone has not done planning. So they don't have a power of attorney, personal directive, or a will. Um, and while that's important for an individual, it is much more important or really significant for a business owner because their business interests are at risk, but so are their employees. Um, and the situation in which we've run into a couple of times has been someone has become suddenly very ill and cannot manage their affairs, or in one case has passed, and we don't have access to account records. We don't know how much money's in the bank. Are the taxes up to date? We can't make payroll. Uh, so we've had that happen where uh, we've been in a situation where payroll's due in a couple days, someone has suddenly become incapacitated, and we have to figure out how can we convince a bank to allow us access to the company's funds. And that's not easily done, as you might imagine. What we've had to do in those cases, because the planning wasn't done in advance, we've had to go to the court on a rush basis and get a court order at you know, what is a much more considerable cost, um, takes a lot, of, a lot of time and, and energy away from people while they're, they could be dealing with the business's problems on a day-to-day -day level. Instead, they're having to deal with this. Um, but there is planning that could have been done that would have prevented that from happening. When you talk about the cost associated, is this mostly you have to build like a fairly convincing case for the courts? And so it's a lot of time for the, for the drafting lawyer yeah, I mean, the case for the courts has to be really convincing. I mean, what we're really asking for is an extraordinary remedy. We're asking for the keys to this corporate bank account, the ability to make decisions for them, uh, the ability to affect employees. And so, you know, we have to convince a court that it's 
that it's necessary. Nothing less than giving us access to these bank accounts on an urgent basis is, is going to work. Uh, and so it's, you know, preparing a fairly significant affidavit, uh, securing urgent court time, which is, you know, can be hard in and of itself with judges' time, um, and then getting that court order. And then, you know, the newly appointed decision maker has to take that to the banks and, and figure out, uh, you know, that quagmire there, which can be hard because even, you know, even when faced with a court order, sometimes the banks need to get their legal advice before they respond. And who would be the decision maker here? Is it the spouse? Is it the general manager of the business? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, that can that can vary uh, depending on who wants to make that application. Uh, we would often uh, be taking the instructions from the spouse, um, but we may very well decide to get a business manager involved uh, in making those decisions. Um, and, it, you know, and really getting someone appointed for the for a limited purpose for a limited time. And I think that's the other problem. If you if you don't plan ahead the court is going to give us just a very limited window to get in and get done what needs to be done rather than having something that can be ongoing during the time of the person's illness or after their death. Like if you haven't addressed it in advance, really, if you're given that limited window, what's the long-term solution? The long-term solution would probably be some sort of permanent application. I mean, in the case of death, it would be applying to get a grant of administration in the estate. Um, in, in, in terms of the business, it will, would probably involve some long-term court application to figure the plan out. Um, you, you know, the court's going to be willing to give you that initial advice, that initial direction to go in and get the money, but they're going to need to supervise that process. Uh, and I think, as we've talked about a lot when I'm doing courses, I think a concern that people have in doing planning is I'd rather not spend the time, the energy, and frankly, the money to deal with the planning issues. And I, and I hope that what people hear when they hear this is realize not planning is a far more expensive uh, answer than the planning would have been the initial. And you've also lost control. So that business owner now is not part of that discussion. They're not part of that court application, maybe able to give the advice as to who should be making these decisions. How, how have I made the decisions and what, bus, what direction do I want my business to go in? Just payroll alone sounds like a nightmare, right? How does this work? You pay everybody, you report to the courts exactly what you paid, you show checks or cash. I assume they're concerned that you're just stealing money here, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, uh, it can involve as much or as little reporting as the court would direct. And so sometimes that's, you know, given more blanket authority. Sometimes it would be something come back to us in six months. Anybody who's acting under that kind of order is going to have to keep excellent records. And a corporation, they're going to have those records, of course, you know, as a matter of business. So payroll is one issue. Is it different for paying suppliers or other issues like that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, all of those issues will be need to be resolved. And so piecemeal, you may have to address them one after the other. We would try to get a court order that would allow us to take care of all of those issues. But anytime you're doing something with a view to solving future problems, you sometimes don't hit the mark because you, you know, you don't know what's going to necessarily be coming down the pipe. As a business owner, you know that things change day to day and that's why you need to have someone appointed. You know, in one case, we were able to get someone appointed as director. So that person could then just keep making the ongoing decisions. So it's a situation in, in which the answer we get isn't perfect, but it will work. The better option, though, is to do the planning in advance, because then as business owner, you have the opportunity to craft that plan, be part of that plan, um, and make sure that it's going to be able to go off relatively without a hitch and more quickly if you should become incapacitated or if you should pass away. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to the advanced planning. I have a few more questions about the sort of short-term problems here. So in the cases you described, obviously the dead guy, you know what happens there, but you know when you have a serious illness or a, a sudden disability that renders somebody incapacitated, are those businesses, do they operate the whole time or is there know, some attempt to wind down? What really happens with the businesses there? Yeah, so the, in the case that we that we were dealing with, um, we did operate the business for that time period. And in fact, the individual business owner recovered. Uh, and so there, there, it was good that we were able to operate it uh, during that time period. 
winding down may be something that needs to be considered. And, and part of that would also be something that needs to be looked at in terms of that planning that, that we will get to. Uh, because if, if a business owner has a specific plan to preserve the business, to continue the business, or what's, what's to happen with it, if, if a succession plan involves, for example, children, it's nice to have that plan laid out so that we can try to follow that plan. That's perfect. And I, like I said, yeah, I want to get there. Is there any other short-term issues that you saw that became really problematic? Anything that you could put a finger on? Like, was there a decline in revenues associated with this that puts some additional pressure on, for example? Um, we, well, we have had issues uh, lately, uh, given that we're in the COVID crisis. Uh, when, you know, the COVID crisis and the financial crisis that resulted from that, time can be of the essence. So if we are not able to take advantage and make decisions immediately when something happens and we have to use the courts to get someplace, in this day and age, a one week, never mind a one to two month delay, can really seriously impact the decisions uh, that you would have made and the results you get from the decisions. So I know that you know we've run into some difficulties where you know we've inquired about the value of a particular account or assets, um, and then if we haven't been able to access those for various reasons for a period of time, there's been dramatic change, uh, and not generally for the good. In, in what that uh, that person or that corporation has been able to realize on their assets. So delay, particularly in these volatile times, can be extremely costly. Yeah, I would guess. I mean, first off, you're spending a bunch of money that you didn't need to spend, as you pointed out already. Yeah. And then on top of that, you've got these you know, administrative things that are taking you away from actually taking the person who doesn't even normally run the business away from running the business, right? I assume this is a very time-intensive exercise, not just for you, but for whoever is granted authority. Absolutely. And I think you can't forget the human side as well. You know, you mentioned a spouse. So we've got a person who may have been suddenly dealing with the critical illness of their spouse. And on top of that, have the sleepless nights of not knowing how their employees are getting paid, how the business's bills are being paid. Those things can be added on top of a very real concern that they have for their loved one's life. And so, you know, just that personal toll is very significant. I know you're quite passionate about getting the planning done properly in advance. I've seen you make a convincing case for this. Obviously, this is something that you would like to see never confront one of your clients again, right? Yes. So I'm a a small business owner, let's say just a single owner operator scenario. Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, I know I need this planning done. So, So first off, how do you actually get in front of clients who need this? Do you, is there some networking? Like, do you see them through a, maybe like an EO type of organization? Do you get them from accountant references? Are they your wills and estates clients come over? How, how do you get them in front of you? You know, at our office, because it, because Denton's itself is, it's actually a global law firm and, and our Edmonton office is very significantly involved in the Edmonton corporate world. We get a lot of clients through that uh, internal referral network. Um, Doris and I and our associates in our department also work very closely with a number of financial planners, with the people that I meet at your seminars, uh, with banks and trust companies, and they will refer clients to us to say, you know, here's someone operating this business, uh, doesn't have a plan for the future, uh, can you meet with them? And, you know, I think the first step is getting them into the office. Um, Hopefully, getting them to the right type of uh, a lawyer who has this kind of uh, background as, as what they primarily do. Um, I know I've, I've mentioned this before, but I think it's really important to speak with a lawyer who does state planning and who focuses on that as uh, a, a, you know, a significant portion of their practice. Um, we meet with people, we you know, can have an initial meeting, talk about their goals, talk about you know, their business, their personal, their personal situation, um, and then have them fill out a really detailed questionnaire that, you know, really helps us get down to the heart of of them and their business. And then we continue from there. I assume the corporate commercial side would be your your primary sort of like when you're talking about them coming to Denton's for work, everybody in business needs a corporate commercial lawyer, right? That's so do you have to go to sort of go sell to the 
corporate commercial team and say, hey, you know, send your people over to see us. This is what happens if not, or do they kind of get the value and and it's a it's a by default thing where they're saying, okay, when we're at like this stage, I'm always going to send them to see um, Aaron and Doris, or, or how does that relationship work? I would say, Jason, it's a bit of both. Um, I think that the job of any business person, lawyers included, is to constantly remind people that you're there and what can you do. So there is a little bit of that. Um, certainly, though, our lawyers at Denton's, um, we we work really, really well together um, as an integrated team to try to look at how can I maximize the Denton's platform for my client in all the sectors that we do work. So internally, uh, we do a lot of marketing so that what we do is known to uh, the lawyers in our office. Externally, uh, we do the same thing. Um, so it's, it is a matter of getting the word out. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, the lawyers that operate in our corporate commercial department in our tax group uh, in Edmonton and in Denton's uh, across Canada are really familiar with what needs to happen. And, you know, I think we are all blessed to work in a place where there is someone down the hall who's an expert at whatever it is that you need done for your client. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and that makes a lot of sense, right? That's the benefit of sort of that multi-headed dragon, if you want. Yeah. Yes. Big multi-headed purple dragon at Denton's. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes. So the client comes to see you then. So this checklist, what kinds of things would you discover in that uh, in that checklist? Yeah. So we're really looking for information about, well, what does what does this person's life look like? So what does their family life look like? What does their business life look like? How are their assets held? Um, you know, do they have things um, with named beneficiaries? Do they have insurance in place, for, perhaps for themselves or for their business? And really trying to drill down to get the good detailed information about that. Uh, the quality of the planning that we can do really does depend on the quality of the information we get. So we do spend quite a bit of time. I, I joke all the time that people think I'm super nosy, um, but it's nosy for a good reason because I really want to be able to put the plan in place that you're looking for. And that's really only possible if I actually have a good sense of where things are at and where you'd like them to be. So I'm a business owner. How much effort would I expect to put in sort of if you, you know, I, I say, I'm going to go meet with Erin, and she's going to help me get all my estate planning in order. What kind of time commitment, how much energy am I putting in? Like that? You know, I'm thinking that you're probably going to be looking at, uh, you know, at least spending a couple hours going through that questionnaire. Um, it would not be um, unusual for us to also perhaps speak to a business manager in the business to get some of that information. Sometimes we're referred out to, to their financial advisors. And as long as we have the permission to do that, that's a perfectly valid way to help offload a little bit of that work from the really busy uh, business owner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Good to use those resources where you've got them. So, so now I assume it's sort of the, the standard. You're doing a will, a power of attorney, a, a personal directive, right? Um, how, how are those different from what you would see for the person who doesn't have a, uh, uh, that small business interest? Well, primarily the will and the power of attorney are going to have some clauses in it that reflect on how to operate, continue the business uh, while you're either incapacitated or after you pass. So a, a very good part of the planning will be similar for um, you know, a non-business owner and a business owner. Uh, but, you know, some of the things that we're going to have to think about if we're planning for a business owner is some of the practical things. Um, who has a key to open the business, who knows the passwords to the computer, uh, who can write checks, um, do we know what contracts are ongoing, do we know what inventory is ordered, like all of those things that come up. We have to think about who has that information. And it's important to plan for um, a way to preserve the value of the business and preserve the business. So that is something that we're doing and that we're assessing. In doing that from the from the incapacity side, we're looking at the power of attorney. So uh, that document, of course, is a document that's prepared to say, if I should lose the capacity to make my own decisions and, and be able to decide for myself and for my business what I uh, would like to do, who's going to do it on my behalf? 
Now, the consideration for a business owner there might be a bit different in respect of part of their power of attorney because they might be looking at maybe it's not a spouse or a child who should be making those business decisions, but perhaps there's a business manager who should be the attorney uh, in respect of that, who could actually manage the business or find someone to manage the business. We're going to want to give access to the information they need. They need. We're going to need to be specific. Um, we recommend uh, that if we have, for example, more than one decision maker, we might want to have a dispute resolution mechanism, maybe an arbitration clause, something that can help prevent that. Um, it's very important, though, that we consider the kind of power of attorney that we're doing. Um, in most cases, the business owner is not going to be doing a power of attorney that takes effect immediately, but doing one that we call the springing power of attorney. And that's the power of attorney that I signed today, but I don't intend for it to be effective today. Um, as you know, I often call it the superhero. It's done, it's ready, it's got its cape, but it's waiting in the phone booth. And when we need it, it jumps out, leaps into action. That's the kind of power of attorney that the business owner is going to want, but they're going to want it beefed up to make sure that it has those clauses to deal with a business. So it's really important if you're meeting with a lawyer to look at doing that kind of document, you know, it sounds trite, but make sure that the lawyer knows that you're running a business, you know, make sure that they know that you need to have those powers addressed in the power of attorney, because just a general power of attorney that doesn't really deal with those isn't going to be adequate for your purposes. What about in the gig economy? You know, you have a lot of people who would be like a Monday to Friday, nine to five type of thing, and then might have, I don't know, I actually just ran into one, somebody who's uh, doing Norwex, making pretty good money, 5,000 bucks a month net. And like, how big does my business have to be or how much does it have to be a sort of dominant part of my life before I should be thinking about that? Like, would that Norwex salesperson be different? Not necessarily. I mean, to the extent that they're running that business as a business, um, it doesn't increase your cost in terms of planning in order to add these these clauses. So really anybody who has an, a business on the go uh, that contributes to their personal well-being, maybe, you know, if it helps keep the lights on and keeps the kids in their sports, it's important enough to protect. And so, you know, my thought would be, given that it is so easy, uh, if you're dealing with the right lawyer, to amend a power of attorney to reflect that business interest, that it's not a matter of, you know, I need to be you know, really doing uh, hitting the ball out of the park business-wise in order to make it worth my while. This is something that can be done for anybody with the smallest business venture or perhaps a startup that aims to get there but isn't there yet. And then does this change when you have somebody who has another a partner in their business, like there's, you know, two or three shareholders or whatever different structures they're using? Yeah, so you're going to want to consider and make sure that your uh, the lawyer that you're working with has a an understanding and a copy of any unanimous shareholders agreement that you have. Um, you're going to want to take a look at how your business is structured. Uh, you know, to someone who is in a multi-partner or multi-shareholder business, it with you know number of directors, it may not be, it give the same impact if that person loses capacity in that that moment. Um, but you're going to want to look to make sure that uh, you consider the USA, consider anything else that's in place. You're definitely going to still address how your interest in that business is to be dealt with. And I assume at that point you would be talking to their corporate commercial lawyer a fair bit. There'd be a lot of overlap between the work you're both doing. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that does really work well when we are working uh, with other lawyers from our firm. But if not, we're happy to reach out to whoever the person's working with. And maybe the tax team is in there. And the... Absolutely. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Um, so you mentioned that a lot of times people haven't fully considered their succession plan or they have a succession plan that might be bouncing around in their head, but they've never written it down, probably never talked to the other people involved in their succession plan about it. Mm -hmm. Do you find this is sometimes a, a painful discussion? Is it a little bit of uh, like a cognitive dissonance that shows up here? You know, I find it's the thing that, yeah, people are more afraid to get, the, get it started. And once they do go down the process, it's a little bit easier. 
Um, I find that there are certain roadblocks people come in, come up with, you know, picking an executor or an attorney, you know, on the non-business side, picking guardians for children is usually a terrible argument in a family uh, that has to be dealt with. And what I usually advise people is just put down on paper what what part of our questionnaire you know how to fill out. And then we can have a meeting. And usually in that meeting, with the help of the lawyer, we're able to come up with a plan or figure out what are the roadblocks you're experiencing? What is the piece that you're not understanding? And maybe help come up with some creative ideas. Um, I would say that it's one of those things where humans are excellent at procrastinating. And this seems to be a task that lends itself to procrastination. And I don't really know why, whether it's not wanting to pay to see a lawyer, whether it's just not liking to see lawyers, that could be. <laughs> but uh, once we get in the process, I find people are usually find it goes relatively smoothly and they certainly feel a great sense of relief when it's done. Agreed that it, it should be done and great to get it started. So, uh, you know, you're here primarily because of uh, the linkage that we have to financial advisors. I, I think that's fair, right? And certainly how we got to know each other. What advice would you have for the financial advisor then who's sitting down with the you know, small business owner client where either the, you know, the advisor says, you should go see Aaron. And the, the client says, yeah, yeah, whatever, I will, right? And you know it's not going to happen based on that quick conversation. How much should the advisor be pressing here? Do you have any tools you can give to the advisor to make that conversation easier? I think that the comments you made at the beginning of the discussion here are quite useful. Anything more than that? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's always hard as a professional to know how much it's okay to push. Um, but I think for the advisor, this is a situation in which a, a, a degree of pushing is appropriate. Um, so I think some follow-up. It is a good idea. Uh, perhaps make the introductory email. Um, if you say to the client, hey, you should give Aaron a call, it, you know, it may very well get put on a to-do list that never sees the light of day again. Um, and that's true for a lot of us. But if you reach out and say to the client, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send an email off to Aaron. I'm going to copy you on it. You know, you're welcome to proceed or, or choose not to. But then that allows perhaps me to take over the next step and let them know just how easy we might get to the next step um, by replying to that email. So I think that helps. Another thing that we sometimes do and, and certainly I think works really well is, you know, if an advisor perhaps wants to set up, you know, a presentation, a seminar for a number of clients, we've often done that where they set up an evening, uh, we come in, we give a presentation to say 20 or 30 of their clients, and then that advisor can feel that they've really taken the step to try to get the information in front of his or her clients. What they choose to do after that is, is gonna be their call, but you've not just given the name, but you've given the information. I think sometimes when people hear it from us, you know, what would, could potentially happen if they don't have the planning, then they sometimes feel the, get the impetus to get moving. So one of the, I don't know if excuse is the right word, but one of the things I hear sometimes from financial advisors, and for what it's worth, I believe this is a complete misconception. I don't know if there's any support for this anywhere, but <laughs> a lot of people say, well, and I, there's a couple of firms whose compliance rules dictate this. So this is different for those folks, but I hear a lot of people say, well, I have to give three referrals. I can't sole source. I can't just send somebody to Aaron or I can't yep. bring Aaron in because if she you know, does something that harms the client, then I'm going to get sued along with Aaron. Do you have any comments about that sole source versus giving whatever it is, three names? You know, someone else actually asked me, we were about this this last week because we were developing a, a bit of a referral uh, work with them and, and they said, oh, you know, I'm not really in a position to, to do that. Some of that's on me you know, go ahead, give the three names. Um, you can mention how, you know, how do you know me? How, why do you feel comfortable with me? But it's up to me to sell myself. And so if you, if you do need to give out the three names, then, you know, I'm comfortable with that because I know that I can develop the rapport with your client and hopefully we're the right fit. And if we're the right fit, they'll, they'll choose to go with our firm. I guess my concern about the three names thing is I think that it's a paradox of choice issue if you give the three names, and I don't know the stats on this, I know that the, there's the famous JAM study, which I can talk about separately, but that shows that when you give people too many options, they take none of them, right? So that's always my... Yeah, I, so I think that might be one of those cases where 
taking the next steps where whether it's that you give them the three names but you you also give out a business card or perhaps you attach um, a presentation that we've given um, that we can send the slides with you know maybe if a name comes with some personal experience that can help that's fair sort of lift one to the top there that's uh, yeah yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. I don't. I don't want to put anybody out of compliance issues for sure. But I, I do think that it's more important that you get the names to them and that you help them try to get to the next step of doing their planning. It's really too important of a thing to not do. Maybe this is a one-off scenario, but I just ran into one of these that I found interesting. Have you had clients like this where they have business interests in both Canada and the United States or some other country? Yes, we've had a few times that that happens. It can be quite complex and usually it'll involve us involving uh, lawyers in both jurisdictions to make sure that we're we're doing everything correctly. Again, this would be, I'm assuming, a benefit of the many-headed purple dragon. This is <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we've got people all over the United States and pretty much the whole world. So, you know, we would check in with uh, with advisors in those areas to make sure that the planning that we're doing is going to work. Um, we, we see it a lot, not necessarily um, as often internationally as people who have business interests across provinces. Um, and, you know, for the most part, in terms of powers of attorney, personal directives and wills in our country, uh, this the basic requirements are pretty much the same. So, you know, for the most part, something that you do in Alberta should be accepted and dealt with in those other provinces. I hear the staple of the COVID era interview in the background. I hear your dog in the background there. So that's oh. fun. I, yeah, it's, yes. uh, I hear a lot of uh, content being recorded right now with either dogs or kids or husbands crying in the background. So yeah. Well, uh, I will say the dogs are less likely to be controlled. My children are older. So uh, at 11 and 15, I can tell them mom's doing an interview. <laughs> so what about, you mentioned it earlier, the insurance side, how comfortable, familiar are you with uh, with insurance coverage that you would see used uh, hand in hand with, with these risk management scenarios? Uh, we, we do see that quite a bit. Um, and uh, we deal with it, uh, you know, in terms of the planning, uh, making sure that it, it's appropriate, uh, making sure that people understand the insurance that they have and how it works with their will. Yeah, I think that's a good point. One of the issues that I hear, I don't know what your personal opinion on this is. Do you sometimes set up beneficiary designations directly in the will, vice on an insurance app? Do you have a feeling about that at all? We do often confirm what we want to see as insurance beneficiaries um, designations. We, we will confirm that in a will uh, where, for example, they're important to, uh, to get right. But one of the things we will also do in that procedure is ensure that the person has gone back to their advisor and make sure that it is properly reflected. It would be my preference to not have an inconsistency between the two if we can avoid it. Yeah, I know this is something that if it's done carelessly, and I think this happens on, on both sides, if it's done carelessly, then often the insurance does not have the uh, intended effect. And, you know, you do sometimes see this happen sometimes where it's un unclear enough that the insurance ends up getting paid into court until we can figure out who's really supposed to get it. And so any time that you hear court, your plan should have been how could I have avoided it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that'd be a great topic for another interview. I'd love to talk about uh, insurance in more detail yeah. there. Um, do you have any last minute thoughts around planning here around how the financial advisor can help out? Uh, around the discussions you have with your clients? Anything else you want to uh, wrap us up on? I think I would just simply say that this is the kind of topic that best of intentions to get done, but once you need it, you need it. And so procrastination really is the problem here because we are all so good at it, but we don't know when we're going to need it. And I think, you know, especially this COVID era that we're in right now, we know that healthy people can become sick quickly. And so your best intentions to have done your planning won't help you at that point. And you don't want to have your, a situation in which your business partners, your, your, your spouse, your children are going to have to go to court to do things that you could have done very, very simply. So the key is let's not procrastinate. Choose an advisor, meet with them and get things done. And really no reason somebody couldn't go through the whole planning cycle right now. You can do everything here virtually or you have reasonable workarounds for 
what's needed physically. So absolutely, I would say you know to the contrary of uh, people being less busy in our world right now in estate planning, we are more busy. We are seeing more and more people who want to get their things done. Um, we have the resources to get that done and get it done quickly. So we're seeing people. We've come up with ideas to how we can work think, work around. We are meeting people through Zoom and FaceTime and other software. Um, you know, in terms of signing documents, there's some unique things that happen uh, in terms of how it has to be done. But we have lots of ways that we can work around that to try to get this done. Um, COVID shouldn't be an excuse to not get your planning done. It probably should be the opposite. Yeah, I think I'm hearing a fair bit of that. Talking to the folks I know who do uh, wills and estates work, they seem to be busy at a, an unusual pace. So, I mean, I guess that's yeah. a silver lining, right? <laughs> we all need a silver lining yeah, these days. That's right. So, <laughs> and, and Aaron, I'll have your contact information in the show notes. And I know you always say, feel free to reach out to me if you have questions. I know you're, you're a big fan of that sort of free set of questions or have you want to look at it, right? Yeah, absolutely. If someone has a question, you know, just give us a call, pop me an email. You know, sometimes you you don't need any legal assistance right now. You might just need a little bit of guidance to tell you that things are okay or where do you need to look. Um, but I'm happy to have you send those questions. And if it turns out we can work together, then all the better. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. No problem at all. To obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also, you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there, and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need, including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now, or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, we heard Aaron talk about some of the concerns for business owners who don't do their planning properly. She talked about some of the tools she uses to get business owners to do that planning. I want to take a a couple minutes here to talk about what I see as the role of the financial advisor in this whole process. So if you're going through your financial planning curriculum, for example, you certainly do get to learn about how wills and powers of attorney work, and you would learn things like the distinction between an enduring or springing power of attorney, that's the superhero to which Aaron referred, and an ordinary sort of administrative power of attorney. But obviously, you're not doing any of that work yourself. And the reason that you learn all of that stuff in the financial planning curriculum, and even to some extent in the LLQP or in your mutual funds course or the Canadian securities course, is because you have to be aware of when the client needs that kind of help. And it's not intended at all to replace the work of the wills and estates lawyer, but really it's we want to get rid of those reasons why our client might not do their proper planning. So we want to make sure that the client is not just well insured and has good cash flow management and good retirement planning, but we want to make sure that estate planning gets done. And I find that this doesn't always work out how we might want it to. I know a lot of financial advisors who will say, okay, client, you got to go see a lawyer and get a will done or go get your planning done or whatever the case is. And first off, I would suggest that the will comment will sometimes fall on deaf ears. Not everybody responds well to that discussion and it's very much like the life insurance discussion 
You have to disturb and motivate people. You have to get them recognizing where things can go wrong and that there are steps they can do to fix these concerns. Now, sometimes the prospect of premature death is not really what somebody thinks about that much. I think if you're dealing with younger clients, you know, I, I don't want to pick on millennials here, but, you know, the millennial is more likely to perceive a, a serious disability or a loss of capacity as a concern than a premature death. And so you might focus on power of attorney and maybe the prospect that then that person's spouse or common law partner or parents is now in a decision-making role without the legal tools to do so. That might be a little bit of a way to disturb and motivate that person. So we want to find tools that are going to encourage our clients to get from our office to the lawyer. And I know I've talked about this on a previous episode, but I know some financial advisors who will go so far as to actually book the appointment. So they have the client sitting across from them. They'll pick up the phone and they'll call the lawyer's office and they'll say, okay, what openings do you have? They'll look at the, lawyer, the client. They'll say, what's going to work with your schedule? And we'll book the appointment. Okay, That's one possibility here. Now, what else can we do? Well, you could look at what Aaron suggested in the interview, and I think it's an excellent suggestion, is to do a group session where you have the lawyer come in and talk to 10 or 15 of your clients. In the era of COVID, you might do it as a maybe a Zoom meeting or whatever the case is. Maybe encourage your clients to pick up a bottle of wine or whatever and have a glass of wine while they watch Erin give her presentation, sort of outsourced wine and cheese or something to that effect. So I think, and Erin just did this session over Zoom, so clearly she's capable of it. So I think it's worth having a process in place where you have a high degree of confidence that your clients will get wills and powers of attorney done. And it might be that you do the list of three or list of 10 names or whatever the number is for your compliance requirements. I think if you're going to do that, there has to be a fair bit of follow-up. I think the expectation that you give somebody that list of three or 10 names and it turns into a will or turns into an estate plan may not be realistic. So I think that if you're going to do that, there's got to be some follow-up. That might be a rule for an assistant to play. You might be able to get technology to help out there. Maybe you set a calendar reminder for the client. You send them an outlook and say, confirm that your initial appointment with the lawyer is booked or something like that. I think there are ways to manage this. You might use a reminder on an app like Keep or just your Outlook calendar, whatever it happens to be, to make that happen. You might do what I had suggested earlier and actually just pick up the phone right then and there, regardless of what it is. I think that you have to have some process in place here where you make sure that your clients do have their planning documents in place. I know a couple of financial advisors who say, I won't even touch a client until I know that they have a will and power of attorney in place. I think that's a good step to take. It does create a little bit of sort of a perceived value for the financial advisor or financial planner services. My one concern here is you might find that portions of the will or other documents have to be rewritten after the fact. And often you'll find in the financial planning sort of information collection stage that you'll end up collecting a lot of the information that will ultimately be useful in the lawyer's work as well. So a lot of times, you know, you have a personal net worth statement that gets created in the early stages of the financial planning process. And if their client takes that to their lawyer when they get their will done, that is a, a time-saving measure. That's the kind of thing that the lawyer will generally really appreciate. Now, we also heard Aaron in the interview here talk about insurance, and this is where I think there's a little bit of a two-way street. Certainly, the lawyer is going to be the expert on the wills and estate side, and I know that sometimes insurance folks are hesitant to do this, but I think that the insurance agent in this case has to be willing to talk to the estate lawyer and make sure that the insurance picture 
matches up with the estate planning picture. The worst case scenario here is where the lawyer and the insurance agent don't have any line of communication open and the will does one thing or the will expects that there will be insurance in place and the insurance agent does not communicate with the lawyer and you might find that the lawyer thinks that there's permanent insurance in place or the lawyer assumes there's going to be a renewal at the end of a term where the insurance agent hasn't set things up that way or you might have a disconnect around beneficiaries. You might have a disconnect around policy ownership. If we're looking at that small business owner client, a lot of times the insurance agent will have the client's holding company own those insurance policies. And the lawyer may not be aware that that's how things were set up. So I know sometimes it feels like by calling the lawyer, you're putting maybe a potential impediment in place to eventually putting the insurance in place. But I think that the picture has to be comprehensive here. And if you're going to play the role of the financial planner, and this would apply to the fee-only financial planner who is recommending insurance as well as it would to the, let's say, commission-based financial planner who is also acting as the insurance agent, in all of those cases, that financial planner and I would suggest if there's no financial planner, this probably falls to the financial advisor, that there's somebody here who is trying to create an integrated picture of the entire estate plan. So that's going to be beneficiary designations that might go so far as beneficiary designations on RSPs, RIFs, pensions, and TFSAs. There has to be some awareness of what's happening on the group benefit side. It's an often overlooked area. And there also has to be awareness of what's been done for individual insurance coverage. And hand in hand with that, I think it's important, especially if we're talking about capacity issues like this, that there's some discussion around disability insurance and critical illness insurance. Again, when the uh, lawyer is building this estate plan, it's not just about premature death. It's about loss of capacity. Knowing that there's a critical illness benefit there could be relevant, especially when it comes to a power of attorney managing that. Uh, disability insurance is a very useful tool here for incapacity planning. It assures that in the case of a serious disability, there will be cash available to help deal with these issues. Again, it's so important that the, the picture is a comprehensive picture, that we've really seen every element to it. The number for today's episode is eight. The number for today's episode is eight. Okay, I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks time. We had a little bit of a delay here with these last couple episodes, just a couple of administrative issues, mostly stuff that's actually my fault. And Hopefully we get that delay sorted out now. I have the next couple of episodes already recorded, which I'm happy about. In two weeks' time, we're going to hear from Lisa. And Lisa's going to talk to us about cash flow management in the business setting. It's a nice companion to this episode. It's, again, more financial planning for that business owner client. And it does give us the look at how a business owner client gets to manage sort of erratic or uncertain cash flows. I really enjoyed the interview with Lisa and it came about directly in response to a comment that came up on a couple of the episodes of this podcast. So if you hear something on the podcast where you say, oh, I know the answer to that question, or I'd really like to talk about that a little bit more, you know, reach out to me. I'm happy to hear that. I was really happy when Lisa reached out first off because she's listening to the podcast, which I always am grateful for. And secondly, because she really said, hey, look, this is an area where I have some expertise. I think other people would find it valuable. So it's really in reference to the Ray episodes, which I think were season two, episode six and seven, and then the Ian episode, which I believe was season two, episode nine, where we talked about debt and cash flow management. If you have a minute, I'd appreciate if you would please pop over to iTunes and leave us a review. We've got good ratings on there, not a lot of reviews, and those reviews help us to get discovered. 
I know there's a few folks out there that are actively referring us within their network of advisors, and I really do appreciate that. As with all of you, I build my business almost exclusively on a referral basis. Thanks very much, and enjoy your continued studies. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.